Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Alexander Audio, and today my guest is Ariel Weiss, who is an Alexander Technique teacher in the Philadelphia area. She's been teaching for over 20 years, and she is uh, also very involved in theater, choreography, uh, and and um, has performed... Uh, I think you've performed as a dancer, is that right, Ariel? Yes. And a choreographer, and yes. she's, um, in any event, Ariel is also, uh, a, a, has, has been a student of the late Marjorie Barstow. And we're going to talk today a little about her experiences with Marge and her take on Marge's uh, teaching. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Robert. Ariel, could you begin by just telling our listeners a little about your first uh, impressions of Marge? Sure. Um, I first studied with Marge because I met Bruce and Martha Furtman, and they were studying with Marge Barstow. So I think I came down to Philadelphia uh, to visit their school and study with Marge and then went out to Lincoln, Nebraska. And that was about 1984. Mm-hmm. And that's and, about when I'm, I'm sure we were on a lot of workshops. To, I know we were on a lot of workshops mm-hmm. together during that period. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So my first impressions of Marge were, I don't think I've ever seen anyone that was a more keen observer than Marge Barstow. Mm-hmm. She had a way of looking at the person she was working with, and it's like she didn't miss a beat. She didn't miss a thing, and her attention was so vivid um, that that that's a striking and very vivid memory for me. Um, the delicacy of her hands-on work and clarity of direction also, just it just entirely changed my experience of myself. And... I was I was immediately <laughs> interested in what this woman had to teach me. Right, right. And and when you met her, she was about 85 years old. Exactly. <laughs> Which, I know. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. It was such a new model for me of seeing someone of that age. Um, but the her sharpness, the keenness of her observations. Yeah. And and what was your take on the the group dynamics there, because I think when you were there in the mid eighties, that was when the the size of the summer workshop groups in any case were getting pretty big. Um, (laughs) It could easily be a hundred people in the same room with her. Yes. And (laughs) what's your take on how she, how she dealt with that? Because that was certainly out of the norm for Alexander technique teaching then and today for that matter. Right. Well, of course, I did not know that because that really was my first, well, it wasn't my exactly first exposure, but it really was my first immersion in the work. Um, My impression of that is that Marge held the attention of that room and what she demanded of us was to engage in observation of ourselves and observation of each other so that because you weren't getting a turn very often. As a matter of fact, I kind of remembered counting mm-hmm. <laughs> one summer, 80 or 90 people and realizing it was going to take about three days 
to get a turn with Marge. Mm-hmm. You know, it took some patience to wait for that turn. But what happened was you did an awful lot of learning while you waited for your turn because it wasn't all about having someone's hands on you. It was about engaging in the thinking process, engaging in observation, and engaging in experimentation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite different than how many people come to learn Alexander Technique. Mm-hmm. Although I think, you know, when you said you might take two or three days to get a turn, uh, I I think some of us were, were maybe a little more adept at uh, narrowing those odds. Um, <laughs> but, and, and also, uh, the other well, thing... Well, and we worked with other teachers, right, so it we, wasn't and, two and or also, three days to get a... Yeah. yeah, and also, she would uh, do uh, little t- things where people would kind of walk past her and she would give them a little quick mini Alexander yes. lesson. Uh, I seem to remember, I mean, I remember those groups of 80, 90, 100 people. And uh, I, I think I usually managed to grab two or three little turns with her. But some people were, were more, uh, I guess you could say, skilled at the system. <laughs> to, they could get a little more work that way. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the the a lot of the learning was was taking place while Marge was was working on with somebody else but you were observing and and so on and I can remember once sitting on a couch in one of those large groups and suddenly noticing that I was tightening my neck for the first time I never really appreciated that before and mm. just kind of undid it right there on the spot which mm. is um I'm sure you've had experiences like that too Lovely. Yeah. Well, I'm also having a memory of going and visiting uh, at the Carrington School when I was visiting in London once. And I remember being quite taken aback because after students got a turn with Dillis or Walter, they would very um, calmly go off and do some lying down work, some semi-supine. And no one was watching Dillis and Walter work with other students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that's right. That's right. And yeah. I, I was so taken aback because I was really wanting to watch them work, and and knew that I could gather so much from observing, and I felt rather out of place because I almost felt like what I was doing was rude, because it was clearly a very different learning culture. So. Yeah, and apart from the fact that that Marge had this facility for, in a sense, working working with and teaching quite large groups of people, what what from what you've seen of other Alexander uh, teaching styles out there, what else distinguishes her approach in your mind from from other other strands? Well. For me, there's several things. One is that I think because Marge did not feel beholden to doing it just as she was taught. Marge was an innovator. Uh, Marge was what I would call riffing on a theme. That's not what Marge would have said. But she was taking those principles and putting them into practice. And she was quite... um, Well, what do I want to say here? She, she was quite strict that you apply those principles, but 
her ability to play with the form of it and her willingness uh, to experiment was really quite inspirational. And so um, her teaching changed all the time is what I'm trying to say, that the language that she used or how she would even organize the group, you know, mm-hmm. for, I remember at one time she got very interested that we all work on our speaking. And so we did quite a bit of nursery rhymes that summer. <laughs> right. And, yeah. Yeah. And so she was constantly looking for a way for us to explore our own observations of our use. And so um, this, this willingness to keep experimenting and engage her students. Um, to me, Marge was all about a very insistent uh, having people engage their thinking process, that it wasn't just something you did with your body, that it was very much about directing your awareness and mm-hmm. directing your thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, well, she she used to say, this is all mind work. Mm-hmm. And she... She also had uh, a phrase that she used um, from time to time. You might might have heard it that that she thought that someday there would be a sort of a science of human movement in which Alexander's ideas would play a, a big part. Mm. But you're right. I mean, she definitely she didn't want a passive student. I mean, she wanted people who were going to be thinking, observing, uh, practicing, experimenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was a, th- a major theme of her teaching. But as you also say, it was very, very grounded in the principles. And there's no one around who read Alexander's books more frequently than she did and mm. would refer to them and... I don't know how many times we had to read uh, chapter one of Use of the Self. I mean, she just <laughs> went, I mean, that that would be a great way to get a turn. Say, Marge, I'd like to read something of Alexander's. She, she'd be perfect. That would be a perfect way to get some attention from her in a, in a workshop. <laughs> yes. Yes, you would definitely get a turn if <laughs> At, you talked about Alexander's writing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Also, her lightheartedness and mm-hmm. humor. Mm-hmm. And and real delight. Do you know, there was always this sense that as people freed up <laughs> their downward pull, it, it really was liberating. And, and, you know, I just remember being at those workshops and thinking nothing was more beautiful than seeing people come into their primary pattern. And, and Marge really approached the work with this lighthearted, straightforward practicality lighthearted, straightforward, and practical. You knew that there was always more delicacy that that could be <laughs> available. Mm-hmm. But for me, I mean, I was so fortunate to find Marge in my 20s as a very young and a very, very pushy dancer um, that I got that. I could understand that I could always get more delicate. I understood what it was I was aiming for. Whereas my previous exposure to Alexander Technique so emphasized non-doing, which is a perfectly valid way to teach the work, 
but it really was not a good fit for me at that age and from my background. I didn't really know how to do that. I, I didn't know how to not do that. I didn't know how to know how not to do that. Mm-hmm. I didn't really understand what I was aiming for. Yeah, you know, it might be worthwhile talking a little more about that because um, the a kind of cla- a classic Alexander technique concept is non-doing. Yes. But of course, if you're thinking, you there is a physical correlate to your thoughts. You cannot have a thought without some muscular activity, mm-hmm. and. Uh, my my sense, and I'd be interested to see how you see this, is that uh, the the sort of traditional uh, way of teaching, as you say, will emphasize non-doing. Just think it, just think it, and um, the and that is a va- a valid approach. Where whereas Marge tended to emphasize the if you want to call it the minute movement part of the equation, and she would ask you to, for example, move your head very delicately away from your torso. That was a yes. kind of a common phrase that she might use. And, and of course, a lot of traditionally trained teachers, and certainly when I first encountered that, I'd already been on a training course, I, I was a little shocked by that. Because it went against what I had been taught, but once I saw how she applied that, uh, and I saw how well it worked, uh, I could see that she was kind of approaching that whole a thought affects a movement. A movement is always going to be related to a thought in some way. She was uh, um, approaching it a bit more f- in the opposite direction i would say than most alexander teachers yes and I for and for you that worked a lot better it was essential it really was the essential ingredient that that kind of captured my interest and and my motivation to study this work um and i you know jeremy chance spoke so eloquently about this very subject and teaching paradigms and comparing them. And he really helped me kind of understand in a context what my own experience had been, that that Marge really looked at inhibition in a proactive way. And I remember her saying quite, quite specifically, well, you can't be doing this, as she demonstrated a slump, as you're doing this as she demonstrated freeing herself. Mm -hmm. She said, you can't do them at the same time. Sometimes we're quite crafty, going back and forth, but you really can't do them both simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, I think, uh, as kind of um, another way of pointing out the difference in, if we want to call it her teaching paradigm from, say, many other teachers uh, Mm -hmm. paradigms I can remember in England going to a talk by Marjorie Barlow who of course was a very different Marjorie uh, but a a really excellent teacher in the more traditional mode and when she was asked about inhibition her uh, analogy was uh, the gear shift of a car, standard transmission gear shift, mm. where uh, in, 
if you're going to go from first gear into reverse, you do need to pass through uh, neutral. <laughs> and for her, that neutral or that doing nothing, I guess, mm-hmm. was where inhibition lay. And I think, I mean, I think that's an interest. I think that's a valid model. But I think the Marge model, which she did not herself articulate quite like this, was, again, it's a car mm-hmm. analogy. You're driving down a highway and you realize that you're going in the wrong direction. You mm. you, you passed uh, where you wanted to go. And you pull over to the side. And it's possible you might come to a complete stop or it's possible if it's if there's no traffic on the road, you might pull over and do a U-turn and never stop. But you would be <laughs> changing direction completely. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a, it's so I, I guess you could say it's a more dynamic model of what inhibition's all about or inhibition as movement maybe would be another way to say it. Yes, yes, and I and that I think is also you're leading us up to another very important distinction about Marge's teaching, because she worked with people, uh, kind of, well, what we would call activity work, and what I'm going to say is she met people in the activity of their lives. So in other words, instead of bringing them to, you know, the traditional forms of chair work or. Um, getting in and out of a chair. Uh, She did those too, of course. But because she welcomed us looking at our use inside of things we were quite habituated in. So for me, that was dancing and other people, that was many other interesting activities. By working with us in activity, you could not turn primary pattern into a correct position. Mm-hmm. It was not yeah. possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She made it so apparent that w- what we were after was not to fix ourselves in some, you know, very fancy, cheated, <laughs> stiffened position. Right. Uh, that whole idea of um, dynamic thought leading to dynamic movement, I think she really brought to life by the way she worked with us all. Yeah, uh, and you know, the tr- again, comparing that with the traditional approach, which, as you say, would have uh, various procedures like chair work and stuff about hands on back of chair and all that sort of stuff, lunge, monkey. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the a lot of teachers would um, their approach to teaching somebody would be to confine their teaching to those few procedures. They would become very good at teaching those procedures. And that can be an extremely effective way to teach the technique with the right teacher. The assumption, though, uh, was that that would carry over into a student's other activities. And sometimes it does. Often it does. But there are certainly, I've certainly seen lots of examples of, let's just say, musicians, because I do work a lot with musicians, that will have, you know, many, many chair work, uh, table work, et cetera, lessons. And it'll it'll (laughs) be quite a shock uh, when they come to me and I said, well, bring your violin. Let's see what you do when you play. And they, they, it's almost like, oh, 
this actually, I guess I could apply this to my music, you know, which absolutely, which um, is, you know, from my point of view, uh, I I would a new student who came who who was a musician and certainly the way Marge would approach it, bring your let's get the fiddle out and start playing. Let's see what you do. I mean, that would be the first thing she'd probably do with a a new musician in the group. Yes, and I work with world-class musicians at the Curtis Institute of Music, Mm -hmm. and I spend a great deal of time uh, having my students learn about what they're doing as they bring that instrument up because so much goes on, and that's these students have been practicing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours, Mm -hmm. and so those habits are strong and quite invisible to them. And so, yes, if they're working and having table work, uh, you could be making an impact on their use and functioning, but they need to be able to apply that to that activity. It's essential. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I imagine, I'm, I'm sure there are some people who would just naturally think to apply it, but I, I wouldn't want to count on that with a student. Well, it's not even whether they would think to. For me, it's that the specificity of how they're responding to that stimulus. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I can relate this to my own experience, that I would bring Marge, you know, particular dance phrases, either from choreography I was performing or from kind of warm-up exercises, things that I was very familiar with. When I would return to that set choreography, you know, in a class or in a performance, there was this very kind of vivid muscle memory that I had had a new experience of that very patterned movement behavior in a in a new way, and and it was much easier to to in my own experimentation of directing my own movement. One side um, kind of altered the anchoring of those movement phrases with all that extra tension and misuse. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't really a a show about music, but another example that that, um, I've noticed, and I think this could be applied to a lot of other activities. One of the things I got from Marge, of course, as you said earlier, she really emphasized your developing very keen observational skills. And uh, when when I started working with musicians, one of the things I noticed was that when they would go over to open their case or even just think about <laughs> playing, um, all kinds of weird patterns would often come come into play that, uh, you know, they were certainly not aware of. And um, I, I could see that pretty clearly because Marge taught us to observe those kinds of things. And so when I work with a musician... I want to know what happens when they decide to play and begin that walk over to the case to open it. Exactly. Because a lot happens then uh, and a lot that will affect the subsequent playing. Yes, I'm glad you talk about that because I think really one of the brilliances of Marge's teaching was she really had us notice the critical moment Do yes. you know yes that that from all that very careful observation of ourselves and also in that group you could see it 
you could really start to see it. And I'm a big advocate that if I can get my students to look around in the world and watch other people's patterns of misuse and see that critical moment, it will help them observe it in themselves. Absolutely. I agree 100%. I, I also tell my students that start once they once they have a, a, a hint about what we're doing, um, I, I say go and, and observe people and not not to be critical or judgmental, but whatever you see, ask yourself, am I, am I doing that or the opposite or not doing that? Be, be very interested in the people around you because they can be some of your best teachers yes. if, you, if you use, use it that way. And um, yeah. Is there anything else that, that we haven't covered that you'd like to, to uh, talk about with Mar- about Marge? Well, I think... I just wanted to talk a little bit more about kind of her her attitude towards the work and this mm-hmm. kind of um, and we're touching upon it now in what we're talking about that Marge was so curious she she really never stopped learning she you could see her exploring actively her own sense of herself in movement and her students and this kind of active curiosity and also lightheartedness that, do you know, if someone started getting very despondent, which, oh, how often we did, mm-hmm. <laughs> and how disappointed we were in our own kind of performance, she really was quite insistent that uh, we not take ourselves too seriously. And yeah. yes. that this was really something... Um, she kept it very practical. There was always, of course, you could pay attention a bit more. And of course, you could be a bit more delicate. And of course, you could figure out which direction was away from your body. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it didn't right. need to be quite so introspective and cut off from the world. It didn't need to be overly serious. And that that harshness of thinking would only bring about a kind of stiffness in our own movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, she uh, she was certainly the most in-the-moment person I have ever met in my life. I mean, she she was right there mm-hmm. whenever you were with her. I mean, she, she was not one to dwell much on the past. It, it was kind of boring to her to talk about, oh... You know, we try to get her to say who she liked better, A.R. Alexander or F.M. Alexander, because she worked with both of them. You know, she would have none of that. And and she wasn't really that interested in figuring out what was going to happen in the future. I mean, she was really grounded in the moment, I would say, more than anyone I've ever encountered. And I think that that is related to what you just said. Mm-hmm. For her, I think life was all about process, mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, yeah. And and actually, you're helping me kind of understand too that part of the the what I cherished about Marge's teaching was this this real practicality of it. Yeah. Marge really liked to help people do what they were doing a bit better. Mm-hmm. Do you know that it didn't, it wasn't about a judgment. It wasn't that your uh, good use was better and people with good use were better. Um, it was really that this is what we do because it works a bit better. You breathe a bit better. You sing a bit better. You balance a bit better. Um, and 
I think that's quite key, actually, that, um, you know, I, I often tell my students about Marge um, being very clear with us that, you know, pulling down was really just part of our flexibility, mm-hmm. that the minute we started to try to avoid our slump and stiffen ourselves, we weren't doing what Mr. Alexander had in mind at all. And that really, that was just part of our flexibility as well. And that the point wasn't to never do that. It was to have the freedom uh, to go in and out as we saw fit. Right. She she would sometimes say, well, you know, sometimes I just like to go into a little slump. <laughs> and then she'd go into this very delicate slump. And then mm-hmm. she'd say... But after a while, you know, I might decide I don't want to stay here anymore. But, I mean, she it was okay to slump. Yes. She didn't. And I think that what you've just talked about really points to, um, I guess you could say, the classic uh, put-down that sometimes people might have of, let's say, traditionally trained teachers that they are uh, a little stiff, uh, trying to be right, you know, not wanting to, if you're an Alexander Technique teacher, you don't want to sort of slump in public because then your <laughs> peers will all say, look, that teacher slumping can't be any good. And, you, you know, the nickname is, is Alexandroids. Now, on the other hand, of course, they, looking at Marge teachers, could, would say, oh, well, they're, they're just slumping sometimes. That's not good, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I don't think she was ever really about being right so much as simply making an improvement it was about the flexibility i mean i think that's what i i continue to kind of learn from her teaching and and remind myself of that because you know we bring our pushy habits to trying to be right so and her and that idea of not being right she she would apply to her own teaching i mean often at the end of a workshop I'd be talking with her and she'd say, well, you know, I think I think I did a pretty good job this time. Uh, I I did some things differently, you know, and, and she mm-hmm. she would ex- ex- experiment. She was always experimenting. And yes. uh, the way she taught uh, in the early 90s, for example, uh, was very different than when she taught 10 years earlier. There were there was carryover, but. You know, every time you got, come out to Lincoln to study with her, it, it would be a little different. Yes. She would have thought of some, she have some new ideas. And sometimes in class, she'd come in in the morning and she said, oh, last night I spent a lot of time thinking about how <laughs> how I could have explained that better to you, you know? Uh, yes. That, that's, that, that was her approach to the teaching. And also in a way connected with it in her classes uh, you would have no idea who if you just dropped in from outer space you wouldn't know who was a trained alexander teacher and who was someone who had just walked in off the street Mm. you would have no way of determining it Mm -hmm. other than some of the teachers might have been a little stiffer (laughs) (laughs) and also wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be real quick to think of an activity um, 
when she was said, who wants to do something? Yeah. Yeah, I think with Marge, what you got was a real appreciation that these principles were a, a living, breathing form to yeah. be applied. And that Absolutely. it wasn't some canon that you had to repeat just so, um, but that, you know, if Mr. Alexander was still around, he would still be exploring and innovating. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, and he did. I mean, his career... Yes was marked by many changes in his teaching style. In Frank Pierce Jones's book, he talks about some of those. So I, my sense of Marge was that she was doing exactly what Alexander hoped his t teachers that he trained would do. That, and mm. he saw himself, and he even writes about this, as being uh, his work being a kind of a signpost for future developments. And that I think he even said somewhere, my work is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. He never saw his sets of procedures, for example, the, the ways in which he taught as in any way cast in stone. They were just what worked for him at that time. Mm. So anything else you want to add before we uh, come to a close? I can't think of anything just now, but I so appreciate your including me in this conversation. Oh, and and um, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking about Marge with someone who's who's you know also had experience with her. Um, so uh, my my guest today has been Ariel Weiss, an Alexander teacher in the Philadelphia area. And uh, we've been talking about the late Marjorie Barstow. You can learn more about her teaching at a website set up uh, for her. It's MarjorieBarstow.com. And uh, we'll put a link to it by the interview, but Marjorie is spelled M-A-R-J-O-R-I-E. And her last name is Barstow, B-A-R-S-T-O-W. So, Ariel, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Robert.